This is section 17 of Mark Twain, A Biography, Volume 2. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Mark Twain, A Biography, by Albert Bigelow Payne. Chapter 121, Paris, England, and Homeward Bound. They decided to spend their spring months in Paris, so they gave up their pleasant quarters with Fraulein Dahlweiner and journeyed across Europe arriving at the French capital February 28, 1879. Here they met another discouraging prospect, for the weather was cold and damp. The cabmen seemed brutally ill-mannered. Their first hotel was chilly, dingy, uninviting. Clemens, in his notebook, set down his impressions of their rooms. A paragraph will serve. Ten squatty, ugly armchairs, upholstered, in the ugliest and coarsest conceivable scarlet plush two hideous sofas of the same uncounted armless chairs ditto five ornamental chairs seats covered with a coarse rag embroidered in flat expanse with a confusion of leaves such as no tree ever bore six or seven a dirty white and the rest a faded red how those hideous chairs do swear at the hideous sofa near them this is the very hatefulest room i have seen in europe oh how cold and raw and unwarmable it is it was better than that when the sun came out and they found happier quarters presently at the Hotel Normandy, Rue de l'Echelle. But, alas, the sun did not come out often enough. It was one of those French springs and summers when it rains nearly every day, and is distressingly foggy and chill between times. Clemens received a bad impression of France and the French during that Parisian sojourn, from which he never entirely recovered. In his notebook he wrote, France has neither winter nor summer nor morals. Apart from these drawbacks, it is a fine country. The weather may not have been entirely accountable for his prejudice, but from whatever cause Mark Twain, to the day of his death, had no great love for the French as a nation. Conversely, the French as a nation did not care greatly for Mark Twain. There were many individual Frenchmen that Mark Twain admired, as there were many Frenchmen who admired the work and personality of Mark Twain. But on neither side was there the warm, fond, general affection which elsewhere throughout Europe he invited and returned. His book was not yet finished. In Paris he worked on it daily, but without enthusiasm. The city was too noisy, the weather too dismal. His notebook says, May 7th. I wish this terrible winter would come to an end. I've had rain almost without interruption for two months and one week. May 28th. This is one of the coldest days of this most damnable and interminable winter. It was not all gloom and discomfort. There was congenial company in Paris, and dinner-parties, and a world of callers. Aldridge the scintillating, 
of Aldridge, Clemens used to say, when Aldridge speaks, it seems to me he is the bright face of the moon, and I feel like the other side. Aldridge, unlike Clemens, was not given to swearing. The Parisian notebook has this memorandum. Aldridge gives his seat in the horse-car to a crutched cripple, and discovers that what he took for a crutch is only a length of walnut-beading, and the man not lame, whereupon Aldridge uses the only profanity that ever escaped his lips, damn a damned man who would carry a damned piece of beading under his damned arm. Aldridge the scintillating was there, also Gedney Bunce of Hartford, Frank Millet and his wife, Helmar Hjorth Boysen and his wife, and a Mr. and Mrs. Chamberlain, artist people whom the Clemenses had met pleasantly in Italy. Turgenev, as in London, came to call, also Baron Tauschnitz, that nobly-born philanthropist of German publishers, who devoted his life, often at his personal cost, to making the literature of other nations familiar to his own. Tauschnitz had early published The Innocents, following it with other Mark Twain volumes as they appeared, paying always, of his own will and accord, all that he could afford to pay for this privilege, which was not really a privilege, for the law did not require him to pay at all. He traveled down to Paris now to see the author, and to pay his respects to him. A mighty nice old gentleman, Clemens found him. Richard Whiting was in Paris that winter, and there were always plenty of young American painters whom it was good to know. They had what they called the Stomach Club, a jolly organization whose purpose was indicated by its name. Mark Twain occasionally attended its sessions, and on one memorable evening, when Edwin A. Abbey was there, speeches were made which never appeared in any printed proceedings. Mark Twain's address that night has obtained a wide celebrity among the clubs of the world, though no line of it, or even its title, has ever found its way into published literature. Clemens had a better time in Paris than the rest of his party. He could go and come and mingle with the sociabilities when the abnormal weather kept the others housed in. He did a good deal of sightseeing of his own kind, and once went up in a captive balloon. They were all studying French, more or less, and they read histories and other books relating to France. Clemens renewed his old interest in Joan of Arc, and for the first time appears to have conceived the notion of writing the story of that lovely character. The Reign of Terror interested him. He reread Carlyle's Revolution, a book which he was never long without reading, and they all read A Tale of Two Cities. When the weather permitted, they visited the scenes of that grim period. In his notebook he comments, The Reign of Terror shows that without distinction or rank, the people were savages. Marquises, dukes, lawyers, blacksmiths, they each figure in due proportion to their crafts. And again, for one thousand years this savage nation indulged itself in massacre, 
every now and then a big massacre or a little one the spirit is peculiar to france i mean in christendom no other state has had it in this france has always walked abreast kept her end up with her brethren the turks and the burmese their chief traits love of glory and massacre yet it was his sense of fairness that made him write as a sort of quittance you perceive i generalize with intrepidity from single instances it is the tourist's custom when i see a man jump from the vendome column i say they like to do that in paris following this implied atonement he records a few conclusions drawn doubtless from parisian reading and observation childish race and great i'm for cremation i disfavor capital punishment samson was a jew therefore not a fool the jews have the best average brain of any people in the world the jews are the only race in the world who work wholly with their brains and never with their hands there are no jew beggars no jew tramps no jew ditchers hod carriers day laborers or followers of toilsome mechanical trade they are peculiarly and conspicuously the world's intellectual aristocracy communism is idiocy they want to divide up the property suppose they did it it requires brains to keep money as well as to make it in a precious little while the money would be back in the former owner's hands and the communist would be poor again the division would have to be remade every three years or it would do the communist no good a curious thing happened one day in paris boyesen in great excitement came to the normandy and was shown to the clemens apartment he was pale and could hardly speak for his emotion he asked immediately if his wife had come to their rooms on learning that she had not he declared that she was lost or had met with an accident she had been gone several hours he said and had sent no word a thing which she had never done before he besought clemens to aid him in his search for her to do something to help him find her clemens without showing the least emotion or special concentration of interest said quietly i will where will you go first boyensen demanded still in the same even voice clemens said to the elevator he passed out of the room with boyensen behind him into the hall the elevator was just coming up and as they reached it it stopped at their landing and mrs boyensen stepped out she had been delayed by a breakdown and a blockade clemens said afterward that he had a positive conviction that she would be on the elevator when they reached it it was one of those curious psychic evidences which we find all along during his life or if the skeptics prefer to call them coincidences they are privileged to do so 
Paris, June 1, 1879. Still this vindictive winter continues. Had a raw, cold rain today. Tonight we sit around a rousing wood fire. They stood it for another month, and then, on the 10th of July, when it was still chilly and disagreeable, they gave it up and left for Brussels, which he calls a dirty, beautiful, architecturally interesting town. Two days in Brussels, then to Antwerp, where they dined on the Trenton with Admiral Rowan, then to Rotterdam, Dresden, Amsterdam, and London, arriving there the twenty-ninth of July, which was rainy and cold, in keeping with all Europe that year. Had to keep a rousing big kennel-coal fire blazing in the grate all day. A remarkable summer, truly. London meant a throng of dinners, as always, brilliant notable affairs too far away to recall. A letter written by Mrs. Clemens at the time preserves one charming, fresh bit of that departed bloom. Clara, Spaulding, went in to dinner with Mr. Henry James. She enjoyed him very much. I had a little chat with him before dinner, and he was exceedingly pleasant and easy to talk with. I had expected just the reverse, thinking one would feel looked over by him and criticized. Mr. Whistler, the artist, was at the dinner, but he did not attract me. Then there was a lady, over eighty years old, a Mrs. Stewart, who was Washington Irving's love, and she is said to have been his only love, and because of her he went unmarried to his grave. Mrs. Clemens was misinformed. Irving's only love was a Miss Hoffman. She was also an intimate friend of Madame Bonaparte. You would judge Mrs. Stewart to be about fifty, and she was the life of the drawing-room after dinner, while the ladies were alone before the gentlemen came up. It was lovely to see such a sweet old age. Everyone was so fond of her, everyone deferred to her, yet everyone was joking her, making fun of her, but she was always equal to the occasion, giving back as bright replies as possible. You had not the least sense that she was aged. She quoted French in her stories with perfect ease and fluency, and had all the time such a kindly, lovely way. When she entered the room before dinner, Mr. James, who was then talking with me, shook hands with her and said, "'Good evening, you wonderful lady.' After she had passed, he said, "'She is the youngest person in London. She has the youngest feelings and the youngest interests.' she is always interested. It was a perfect delight to hear her and see her. For more than two years they had had an invitation from Reginald Chumley to pay him another visit, so they went for a week to Condover, where many friends were gathered, including Millet, the painter, and his wife, who had been the wife of Ruskin, numerous relatives, and other delightful company. It was one of the happiest chapters of their foreign sojourn. Moncure de Conway, who was in London at the time, recalls in his autobiography a visit which he made with Mr. and Mrs. Clemens to Stratford-on-Avon. 
Mrs. Clemens was an ardent Shakespearean, and Mark Twain determined to give her a surprise. He told her that we were going on a journey to Epworth, and persuaded me to connive with the joke by writing to Charles Flower not to meet us himself, but send his carriage. On arrival at the station we directed the driver to take us straight to the church. When we entered, and Mrs. Clemens read on Shakespeare's grave, Good friend, for Jesus' sake forbear, she started back, exclaiming, Where am I? Mark received her reproaches with an affluence of guilt, but never did lady enjoy a visit more than that to Avon Bank. Mrs. Charles Flower, nee Martineau, took Mrs. Clemens to her heart, and contrived that every social or other attraction of that region should surround her. From the Notebook Sunday, August 17th, 79 raw and cold and a drenching rain went to hear mr spurgeon house three-quarters full say three thousand people first hour lacking one minute taken up with two prayers two ugly hymns and scripture reading sermon three-quarters of an hour long a fluent talker, good, sonorous voice, topic treated in the unpleasant old fashion. Man, a mighty bad child, God working at him in forty ways and having a world of trouble with him. A wooden-faced congregation, just the sort to see no incongruity in the majesty of heaven stooping to plead and sentimentalize over such and see in their salvation an important matter tuesday august nineteenth went up windermere lake in the steamer talked with the great darwin they had planned to visit dr brown in scotland mrs clemens in particular longed to go for his health had not been of the best, and she felt that they would never have a chance to see him again. Clemens in after years blamed himself harshly for not making the trip, declaring that their whole reason for not going was an irritable reluctance on his part to take the troublesome journey, and a perversity of spirit for which there was no real excuse. There is documentary evidence against this harsh conclusion. They were, in fact, delayed here and there by misconnections, and the continued terrific weather, barely reaching Liverpool in time for their sailing date, August 23rd. Unquestionably he was weary of railway travel, for he always detested it. Time would magnify his remembered reluctance, until, in the end, he would load his conscience with the entire burden of blame. Their ship was the Gallia, and one night, when they were nearing the opposite side of the Atlantic, Mark Twain, standing on deck, saw for the third time in his experience a magnificent lunar rainbow, a complete arch, the colors part of the time very brilliant, but little different from a day rainbow. It is not given to many persons in the world to see even one of these phenomena. After each previous vision there had come to him a period of good fortune. 
perhaps this also boded well for him end of chapter 121 paris england and homeward bound read by john greenman